So we are picking up now on the series we've been doing on Nehemiah. This is going to take us all the way through Easter, by the way, just so, just so you're aware. We'll have a separate sermon on Easter Sunday, but um, it'll be taking us all the way through and past. So we've been going through Nehemiah. We kind of went into the section of Nehemiah where he describes every gate that they're rebuilding in Jerusalem. And we've been taking those gates as symbolic of things that happen parallels in the Christian life. Not just the gates themselves, but the order of the gates is significant. And that was kind of the premise as we walked in and through the gates. And we're almost through. We've got a few gates left. but uh, So this is the gate. Some of you may already kind of figure it out by some of the music staff was playing uh, what this gate is for. So uh, the temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east in the projecting tower. And after them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. And, uh, and so we are going to be talking today about Watergate. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Just show of hands. How many of you know what he's talking about? Does anybody remember? Okay, so those of you who know, look for those people who don't and mentor them. This is like, uh, there's probably a lot of people, what is that? Who's this weird guy? Okay, uh, but that's actually not the Watergate we're talking about. We're talking about the other Watergate, the one in Jerusalem. And this is uh, the, the gate. Now, they don't, you know, Nehemiah names them all, but he doesn't really go into detail about what they were for and what they did because he didn't need to. Everybody then knew what they were for and what they did, but here we come by, you know, thousands of years later. And so there's actually two theories about what the Watergate was for. Everybody's pretty sure it was, a, it was kind of an aqueduct that water flowed either to or some people believe from uh, Jerusalem. But actually some believe that it was an underground spring that flowed water into the temple itself. So it was actually water that went into the temple and uh, became the head of that. So uh, I was praying about it. I said, okay, that's interesting, but God, where is this to us? And I'm kind of praying about it and, and uh, done, done some study as well. And, and I kind of see what this gate is, and I suddenly realized that today's gate uh, is about Jesus. And I thought, well, it's kind of weird to be that late in this series here. We're, we're like, a, you know, week, uh, like the eighth gate here. Why now? Well, let's go back through them and say, well, didn't we go through the Jesus gate first? Well, the first gate was the sheep gate. That's where you hear the shepherd's call. But that's when we know that Jesus is calling us. We don't really know him as we will know him after today's gate as our Lord. We kind of know him as God. We know who Jesus is. We can feel him calling to us in the sheep gate. And then we see his power in the fish gate. Uh, he takes us to the old gate, which is where we understand the law. We understand how we have fallen short, but also how the law is put to protect us. Takes us out through the wilderness. We learn how to hear his voice without distraction. Come back through the valley gate. We realize we have to get rid of all these things in our life that are keeping us away from God. And we, that's the dung gate. Those of you who missed that exciting sermon, um, dung gate. And then last week we talked about the Holy Spirit, and that was the fountain gate. And the Holy Spirit has many different aspects in our lives, but the two we focused on last week were the covering over us, the protection, and then the anointing. But the other thing we did talk about last week was how the fountain gate actually led to the king's garden. So the purpose of the fountain gate was to bring you into the presence of the king in an intimate way. So those of you who've missed all the gates, you 
they're now caught up. And, uh, but I was praying about this, and I thought, well, that's a little bit out of order then, Lord, because surely Jesus comes before the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't the water gate then come before the fountain gate? Because, you know, usually in most Christians' lives, you don't really know who the Holy Spirit is. You'll know Jesus before you know the Holy Spirit. Uh, and actually, God took me back to a scripture and showed me that the gates are in perfect order. It comes to, we come to the Holy Spirit before we come to Jesus. And I've talked about this before. Uh, this is a very dramatic moment, actually, in the Gospels. And uh, I'm going to walk through it again for those of you who have missed it or forgotten it. But Jesus is with his disciples. They're kind of around a campfire. This is after a big miracle's been done. Uh, and he asks them, who, who do people say I am? You know, people are talking. What are they saying? Because we're already in Matthew 16, so it's kind of halfway through his ministry at this point. He said, well, some say John the Baptist, who's beheaded but come back, and some have said that, and some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of these other prophets. And so he says, well, who do you say that I am? And you get the sen- you know, kind of sense if this were a movie, at this point there'd be this pause, you hear crickets chirping, like nobody wants to say anything, which is a little bit odd. And finally, Peter, who's the bold one, says, well, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And, you know, I mean, we've, those of you who've grown up in the church and went to CCD class if you're Catholic and uh, all these different vacation Bible schools, uh, we kind of blip right through this. But uh, once I kind of went back and did a, did a quick study, I said, just in the book of Matthew, just in the Gospel of Matthew, which does not list all the miracles, here's a list of the miracles all those disciples saw prior to Jesus asking the question, who do you think I am? Uh, he cleanses a leper in Matthew 8. He heals a centurion servant without even going there in Matthew 8, 5. He heals many people. That's like, he just says, many people came and he healed them all. We don't even know how many in Matthew 8, 16. He stealed the storm, you know, famously the storms uh, making everybody nervous and he just gets up and says, quiet, I'm trying to sleep here. And the waves obeyed him. He does that. He casts out two different demons in Matthew 8, 28. He heals the paralytic. The paralytic that's where they drop him through the ceiling. Uh, big, big miracle there. He raises somebody from the dead in Matthew 9. Uh, the woman who's been bleeding for many, many years, uh, she you know, just touches the hem of his garment and is healed. Actually, that happens several times. People touch him and is healed. A blind man gets healed in Matthew 9. Two blind men in 9.27. A mute man speaks in Matthew 9.32. He heals the withered hand on Sunday, uh, freaking out the Pharisees in Matthew 12. Then he just recently, like we're in 16, in 14, he fed 5,000 people. You know, that was a huge miracle. And then right before this moment, he walked across the water to get here. The, the, the disciples went in the boat and he walked on water to get there. So all this happens before he says, well, who do you think I am? And so when one out of 12 says, well, I think you're the Christ, I'm thinking that's bad odds. You know, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't like to put myself too high up on the list, but I'm thinking somewhere around the time that he was raising people from the dead, it may have occurred to me, you know, this wasn't just some minor prophet comeback. This is something special. It's not like the Messiah was not taught about in those days. He certainly was. They were supposedly watching for him. And here he is doing all these things. And I would almost expect Jesus to go, really? One? Out of 12 of you, one guy. But that's not what Jesus says. What Jesus says is this. Blessed are you, Simon Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's astounding to me. He's saying there's no way you could have figured this out. I'm thinking, really? With all that evidence, there's no way that you could have figured this out? And here's the thing. You understand God has power, but you don't understand who he is without the Holy Spirit revealing him to you. And in fact, in Romans, uh, Paul tells us that knowledge of God's instinctive. 
He says, the knowledge of God's placed instinctively in us so we'll have no excuse when we stand before him on judgment day. So anybody who says they, they're an atheist, they're actually denying something that's instinctive in them. Knowledge of God is instinctive, but knowledge of Jesus has to be inspired. That's what he's telling them. He's told his 12 disciples, don't feel bad that Peter got it and you didn't. That means the Holy Spirit revealed it to him and not to you. Although at that moment, I think the Holy Spirit revealed it to all of them. So we do come to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, which is why the very first gift the Holy Spirit gives us is the faith to believe Jesus is the Son of God. But that should change things in our lives. You know, up until this time, we kind of have an idea who Jesus is. And I meet Christians like this all the time. They have an idea of who Jesus is. They kind of sort of know. And they're trying to understand it better, maybe. Uh, they understand that, that he died for them. They kind of have that conceptually. But something needs to shift in our lives where Jesus becomes the center of our lives before we can progress further. There has to come a point where Jesus isn't just our Savior, he's also our Lord. Jesus never separates those, by the way. He's always Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior. But a lot of times we want Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. Because the Lord gets to tell us what's really happening and what we really need to do. Jesus as Lord means he's the center of our life. And he tells us this in a very interesting encounter with somebody uh, who really shouldn't have been encountered by Jesus. So this is a pr another something that you probably, if you've been to all the different vacation Bible schools and things, have heard this story too. This is the famous woman at the well story. Uh, so they left Judea and they went again to Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now John writes ironically sometimes, by the way. You have to kind of pick that up on John. Sometimes he's a little bit ironic and I actually think he's being a little ironic here. I'll show you why in a second. A uh, little humor uh, tossed in there, uh, I think. So he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria in a city called Sychar and near a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his long journey, was sitting there by the well and it was about the sixth hour. Now here's why I think that John's being slightly ironic when he says he had to pass through Samaria. Here's a map. I don't know if you can tell this. We don't really know exactly where he was. Okay, He was somewhere in Judea, but, but his, his disciples encountered John's disciples. And it was really funny in John chapter 3, it says John was near water. There was a lot of water there. It's like, well, that's where the Baptist would be, right? So if you're a Baptist, you've got to be near a lot of water. So he was... He was down here near the river, right, the Jordan River. And so the, you know, people believe he's basically about here, the scholars, and that's where he was. And now he needs to go to Galilee, and it's way up there. Now, Galilee is a big area, and it could have gone anywhere in Galilee. But if you're just trying to get from here to Galilee, the best way to go is the river road. You know, the, the Roman Empire was there by that time. They, they, would, they built up that road. It would be smooth. And if you've ever been down the river road, you know, they're kind of flat. Everywhere else is kind of hilly around here. And in fact, um, I put this into Google Maps. And like I said, if you were walking from here to there, what would it look like? And here's what Google Maps drew. Uh, you can see what happens here. And that's because there's, there's a mountain range in here. And so you kind of have to go up and find the pass through it and come back down, right? So here's what John's saying. He's here. He needs to go there. But of course he had to go through here. And it's like me saying, hey, when I'm done here preaching today, I'm going to speak again at a friend of my, my church in Monroeville. By the way, I'm not. But, and uh, of course I'll be stopping at the Coriopolis Inn on the way. You know, it's like, it's kind of like throwing that out there. I think the people of the day would have known that. But here's why I, I fixate on these kind of details. If Jesus truly went maybe 12, 13 miles out of his way, he went there for one specific purpose. It wasn't to travel through Samaria. It was to meet this woman. 
And God does these things. Uh, he sent a whole army and two spies in just to meet Rahab in, in the, 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 the big, before the big uh, battle of uh, Jericho. So, you know, he does this, right? God will go after one person. And it's really amazing how he'll do that. So, I believe Jesus made a trip specifically to have this conversation, not just because he wanted to have the conversation with that woman, but because Jesus, being Jesus, knew this would reverberate through time. And thousands of years later, we would have this incident recorded, which tells me this is really important. Jesus went out of his way, so we would have this incident reported. So there he is. He walks all the way here out of his way to Jacob's well, and he pauses there, and he's sitting down. And for some reason, we don't have explained to us, his disciples are nowhere to be found. Bad form, by the way, for disciples to leave the rabbi alone. There should always be one guy there. That's how it was, because they weren't supposed to touch something because that would make them unclean. And you always had to have people you know, keeping unclean things away from them. Uh, the disciples are there basically to serve and protect the rabbi. So, kind of bad form. We don't know where they were. Maybe they're off trying to find a place to sleep that night for everybody or something. But a woman comes along from Samaria to draw water. Now, we've heard stories of the Samaritans. And we know the famous, the good Samaritan, right? And we even use that to talk about somebody in a positive way. Oh, they're a real good Samaritan. What we miss by that is that Samaritans were considered unclean by most Jews. What happened was uh, there, there was a split in, the, in, in Israel, and there's a north kingdom and a south kingdom. The south kingdom kind of stayed true, but the north king, in, kingdom intermingled with the other races. So they considered them, you know, not even fully Jewish. They were, they were descended from Jews, but they kind of mingled and mixed. And a lot of the Jews from the south thought they were just unclean. Like they, they're as bad as Gentiles. You can't, even, you can't even associate with them. A lot of rabbis would not be seen talking to a Samaritan. They were considered unclean people. So here's Jesus and a Samaritan woman comes and he says, give me a drink. Which, by the way, rabbis have no problem doing. It is, they'll do that all the time. They'll sit down, give me a drink, give me food. It's, it was like, you're supposed to take care of God's, God's prophet. His disciples had gone away in the city, oh, to buy food. They actually tell us to buy food. So that's what they were doing. They're buying food. I don't know why they all had to go buy food, but they all left. So, therefore, the Samaritan woman says, how is it you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? And then even tells us Jews had very little to do with Samaritans. So, so what we're going to see now is we're going to see a, a really weird... Uh, interplay between Jesus and the woman because the woman's entirely going to focus on everything physical. And every time Jesus answers from here forward, it's going to be spiritual. And we're going to see the disconnect between the physical and the spiritual. And I believe that's why this is here. It's to show us the disconnect we have between how God sees things and how we see things. And so Jesus comes back and says, you know what? If you knew, who, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's now asking you for a drink, you would have asked me and he would have given you living water says, you know, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be asking why I'm talking to you. You'd be asking for me to give you living water. Now, God, Jesus is speaking spiritually at this point, and she has no idea. But I want you to see something. He asked her first, right? He was okay with her asking back. Do you understand God almost always asks us for something so he can give us something? Almost always. And, and it might be he's giving us a better knowledge of him or something, but he's asking us, we, oh God, don't ask me to do He's asking us to do things because he has a gift to give us. He doesn't need, Jesus doesn't need her to give him water. He's really good with water. He could make it come up out of the well. He could make it come out of a rock. He doesn't need her help to get a drink. He's giving her an opportunity here to interact with him because he has a gift for her and he wants to let her know that she matters to the living God. He made a special trip just to tell her that because she thinks she's nobody. 
She thinks she's absolutely nobody. So anyway, going forward, she says, okay, well, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? It's like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about. You asked me to get you water because you got nothing. You, know, you got a robe. You can't give me living water. And she's completely focused now on the physical. Focusing on worldly things, by the way, will always stunt the growth of your faith's imagination. If you want to stunt the growth of your faith's imagination, just always focus on the things that are physical. So many times we go to God with a need, but we also go to God with the proposed solution. You know, we'll go to him and we'll say, God, I figured it out. I need $10,000.437. If you would just give me that money, I'm good. You know, we're limiting God because we got this need. And God says, you have no idea what you need. Why don't you just come to me and ask me to help and ask for, for my help in your life instead of telling me particulars of how you want me to help. We're always trying to give him specifics. I don't know. We just don't want him to be worried. You know, we, we don't want to take too much of your time, God. I've done all the studies. I have a spreadsheet. Here it is. And if you could just give me this money, I'll be good. I, I'll leave you alone. But it always uh, stunt your, the growth of your imagination. In fact, your imagination is always limited by your faith. You know, there are creative prayers that Christians pray only because they have faith. And they can see creative things, you know. Some of the stuff that happens in the Bible is like, man, where did they come up with that idea? You know, it's like, wow, who would have thought to pray for that? Uh, and so this is like faith that has to birth that in you. This, this, this spiritual imagination that we lack sometimes. We become very focused. And it's because we're always focused on the physical and we're not focused just on Jesus. And so she says, you're not greater than our father Jacob who gave us as well, are you? He drank it of himself and his sons and his cattle. You're not telling me that you're greater than Jacob. Well, you know, it's kind of ridiculous because of course he's greater than Jacob, right? We know that, by the way, because he wrestled with Jacob and beat him. So we know he's greater than Jacob, right? And, and, but so Jesus is like, again, she's just not, she's not connecting at all with he's talking spiritually. And so he says, um, everyone who drinks the water I'm talking about, uh, this water that Jacob's giving you, they'll thirst, he'll thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst. So he doesn't answer her question, you know, are you greater than Jacob? He simply says, well, let me tell you this. You drink here, you'll be thirsty again. I give you water, you'll never be thirsty again. You tell me who's greater. The water I'll give that person will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He says, I have something to give to you it's water that actually you not only not be thirsty, you'll become a well to feed other people. He said, I have a plan for your life far greater than what you're thinking. You're coming to me saying, hey, solve this one little need. He said, I'm going to fix that need in such a way you're going to help solve other people's needs. I have life to give you that you can't even understand uh, because Jesus is the source of all life. Remember that when God created the world... He did it with the Word. And then John says, the Word's Jesus. Became flesh and came and dwelt among us. Everything was created was created with the Word. Jesus is the source of all life. And that's what he's telling her. He's saying, I'm here offering you something far greater than a drink of water. I'm, I'm offering you living water. I'm, I'm offering you a spiritual revival in your life that's going to actually overflow you into other people around you. Uh, so if he's the source of all life, why is he not the center of ours? And I'm, I'm saying ours, not yours. I'm saying ours. 
Because it's so easy for us to try to shuffle Jesus a little bit to the side, you know. It's like, yeah, I believe in Jesus and yeah, I, I, I get he's God's son and all, but I, I got this. I'll come back to Jesus. I'm going to fix this and I'll come back to Jesus in a minute. He doesn't really understand America. You know, what does he know about credit card debt? I got this figured out and I'll come back to Jesus later. And we shuffle him off out of the center of our lives, which is absolutely positively the stupidest thing we can do. We should have him front and center of everything in our life, which is what he's trying to say. And it's really what the Watergate's all about. It's can we, will we put Jesus as the center of our life? And he's talking to his disciples about this. And another thing, I'm jumping now uh, from the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Matthew. He says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? The Irish have an expression I love is, don't borrow trouble. Don't, I love that because it's like, you know, trouble's coming anyway, but we're going to do is reach forward in the future. We're going to pull it in our lives for today so we can start worrying today about trouble that's coming, right? We're borrowing it from the future. He says, Jesus says, if you're worrying, you think that's a good way of handling this? You don't want to bring it to me? You're going to handle this? You're going to worry about this in your life? Yeah. If you worried forever, can you add one hour to your life? Well, we know actually the opposite happens with worry in our life, right? We actually take years off of our life. Right? He's saying, if, if you can't even add one hour to your life, what are you doing? Because guess who can add to your life? Jesus. That's what he's trying to tell him. He said, why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, Solomon in all of his glory was not as pretty as one of these. He's got, he can't possibly compare. If God clothes the grass of the field that's today alive and tomorrow thrown in the oven, won't he more clothe you? You have little faith? Don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? He says, the unbelievers chase after all those things. But your heavenly Father knows you need them. Here's the secret, he said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things get added to you. He says, here's the secret to all your problems. Me. It says, you, you, you seek me first. You bring me dead center in your life, and I'll take care of these things. I know what you need better than what you did. But what does that mean to put Jesus first? Because that's kind of an expression that we use in Christianity. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this acronym, JOY. Ever heard the JOY acronym? Jesus, others, you. Right? That was taught that because, you know, I was a preacher's kid. I, I, was, I was taught all the acronyms. JOY. Jesus, others, you. Jesus first, then others, then you. That gives you true joy. And I learned it, but I didn't understand it, you know. And I can't even really say that I lived it. Paul lived it. He came, he came by. Paul, by the way, uh, was a Pharisee, which means he was rich, which also means his parents were rich. And he had everything that modern day uh, Judaism could give him, right? He had position, he had title, he was considered very, he was very well thought of as a brilliant scholar, uh, and he was, he was wealthy. And uh, he gave it all up when he became a disciple of Jesus because no one wanted anything to do with him. He was stripped of his position, stripped of his title, his family disowned him. And he says this, he's like, I count all things to be lost when I compare it to the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things, but I count them like garbage. I just want to gain Christ. And this here is like his cry for his life. Just that I may know him. That's all I want. Just to know Jesus. If I could just know him better, uh, then I really will have what I need in my life. And um, 
I got to be honest with you, I lived, like I said, I grew up as a preacher's kid. Uh, I lived my whole life as a Christian. I didn't know anything else. I was quote-unquote saved uh, in a Billy Graham crusade when I was in third grade at Forbes Field. And uh, so, I mean, I've grown up in the church, and, and I lived it, and uh, I got to tell you something. Looking back on my life now, I didn't put Jesus front and center and leave him there until about six, seven years ago. Really honestly. Now, I wouldn't have told you that if you'd asked me six or seven years ago. I, I would have had a much better nuanced answer because, you know, I grew up in the church and I knew the answers to these questions. You couldn't fool me. I knew them, right? And, and so, but I'll give you just two quick examples of ways that I'm looking back now, almost an embarrassment of my life. When Victoria and I moved from Texas to Virginia, uh, we didn't pray about it first. We just decided we would move to Virginia. Yeah, we had an opportunity to do it because I got laid off at my job and they gave me a severance package. And we thought, well, let's go back to D.C. because I'm sure I can find a job there. I didn't pray, God, where do you want me to go? or Because that didn't matter. I'd bring God along with me. See, I made the decisions and God rode shotgun. <laughs> Jesus is my co-pilot. If you have that bumper sticker on your car, you've, you've, you're, you're in the wrong seat. You know, Jesus should not be your co-pilot. He should be the pilot. <laughs> like, maybe you're the navigator. Maybe you're the, you know, not even a co-pilot. It's like, you know, that's just the wrong way. But anyway, so Jesus was my co-pilot. We're going to take him with us to Texas in the U-Haul van. And so uh, we never prayed about it. But there's a guy I knew, uh, actually he was a pastor, uh, associate pastor at a megachurch that we weren't even going to, but I knew him. I met him and I was telling him where we're going to move. And, you know, he first asked me if I prayed about it. And of course, I knew the answer to the question was, of course, of course I prayed about it. You know, I have a peace. You know, I, know, I know how to talk Christianese. Uh, and I can pray a King James prayer if I need to. I know how to do this. I was trained. And so, uh, yeah, of course I prayed about it. We have a peace about what we're doing. Okay, good. He says, um, do you have a church yet? Like, dude, haven't moved yet. <laughs> what do you mean, do I have a church yet? I'm still in Texas. I'm, this is a local call. Uh, I said, n n no, not yet. He goes, oh, good. Because I have some friends there who have some, some churches they go to that they really like. I'll give you a list so you'll know where to choose your house. I thought, whoa. I even told Victoria, this is nuts. This guy actually believes I should pick my church first and my house second. Has anybody ever done that? I mean, other than a preacher who has to, right? But I mean, has anybody ever actually done that? And I thought, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because we've moved, by that point, you know, Victoria was crazy. It was our first, like, seven years. We moved, like, nine times. She should have joined some of the military. It would only be every two years. But we were, like, always moving. Um, the last time we moved over here to, 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 to Mount Vernon, Tammy, Tammy Hinchy was there helping us move again. And uh, she looks at the U-Haul and she says to me, by this time, Mark, do you think maybe there is a rent versus buy decision you missed? You should have just bought the U-Haul instead of renting it all the time, you know, to save money over time. Um, so anyway, so, so we moved a lot. I knew how to move. And some of you do too. What's the first thing you check before you move? The school district. Not the church. You pick your school. That's what you need to do. Make sure there's a good school. Second thing, crime. Number two thing, crime. School, crime, one and two. Everybody's list. Where's church on yours? Wasn't on mine. It wasn't even number three on mine. I'll find a church. I have a car. I have the internet. I'll find a church. That never occurred to me to pick your church first. Funny thing, you know, before we started Spirit Chapel, we were getting ready to move to Cranberry because we found a church there we liked. You know, so that can kind of show you six, seven years ago where the heart had changed, where all of a sudden it's like, you know what, let's move there. Let's just go and move there, and there's a great church there, and we know a great church. Let's go where the great church is. We did change after time, but at the time that we moved there, I wasn't putting Jesus first in my life. I would have told you I was, but I wasn't. 
uh, bef- before I met, uh, go back further, before I met Victoria, before we were married, when I was single, um, I met somebody that I really liked and I thought this could be the one, you know, because I really enjoyed spending time with her. And I was going to tell my family about her and I knew the first question my mom and dad were going to ask is, is she saved? So I had to have a yes for that, you know, because I didn't want her not to be accepted in the family or anything. Uh, so, uh, you know, on one date I asked, but I didn't ask if she was saved. I asked her, do you believe in God? Right? Because who wants to come out with, are you saved and sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ? Who wants to have that conversation and a date? That's like a creepy date, right? So I'm like, do you believe in God? You know, and oh yeah, I believe in God. Now I was in Texas and that was a good chance she was a Christian then, you know. It wouldn't be necessarily depending on where you were, but oh, okay, cool. You know, check. You know, so they could ask me later, you know, she's, and so yeah, yeah, of course she's saved. I asked, you think I'd be dating a woman without asking? Well, I did eventually, you know, I was dating someone without asking. I didn't, that wasn't number one in my life. But more than that, here, if somebody come back and said, well, who's first in your life? This fiancé of yours or Jesus? Well, Jesus. How do I know that? Well, that's an interesting question, right? I mean, it, who, who's first in your life? Is Jesus? Is it really Jesus? Others? You, is Jesus first in my life? Is he center of my life? Yes. How would you know that? And I've thought about that. I thought, well, if anybody really pressed me on that, which thank God no one ever did, but if anybody ever really pressed me on that, here's my answer. Well, if she ever told me I had to stop worshiping Jesus, I'd break up with her. <laughs> okay? So that's how I know that Jesus is first in my life and not her. That's a ridiculous answer, by the way. Because that's a na- totally naive answer because it's not the way the devil works, just so you know. No one will ever come up to you who you're dating and say, hey, if you keep worshiping Jesus, it's over. I mean, no one. What will happen instead is, hey, let's go away this weekend. Right? Let's, just, let's, just, let's go away. We'll get a little bed and breakfast. and Okay. And you're thinking, no church this week. <laughs> and then, hey, let's go out uh, dancing tonight and let's, you know, have a great time. And just, uh, you come home at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. No church that day, you know. And, oh, I was going to read the Bible, but I'm so tired. Uh, or I was going to read the Bible, but she keeps texting me. You know, and I got to reply because you don't want them to, you know, get nervous. And so before you know it, they have supplanted Jesus in your life, not by making a f- decision, they never had to come up and say, this is it, make your choice. You make your choice bit by bit, piece by piece, because Jesus never really was the center of your life. He always was there, but he wasn't the center of your life. And what we see in the Watergate is this moment when we say, no, you know what? Jesus is the living water. He's the source of my life. And if I don't put him first, everything gets wacky. You know, I think it's out of whack. The, the orbit of my planet is wrong because I don't have Jesus in the center of my universe. And so we see that. So going back now to the woman at the well, uh, I love what happens now as she comes back and she says, oh, sir, give me this water. Sounds good to me. Water that never, never runs dry. Always satisfied. I, I want that. Because then I won't be thirsty and I won't even have come all the way here to water anymore because she's still thinking physical, right? And she says, but it sounds good to me. And look what Jesus says. Okay, I tell you what. Go get your husband and come back. Now, why would Jesus ask her that? Why? Because Jesus will always point to the one thing that you hold first in your life. In her case, it wasn't even her husband. In her case, it was seeking approval from men. And Jesus will always look at you and point his finger at the one thing in your life that he knows is before him. 
This is a, people miss the whole, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and, you know, what must I do? And he says, you know, give away your money to the poor. That wasn't because Jesus hates wealth. It's because it was the one thing that was between him and Jesus. And he knew that. He says, you know, you're telling me you do all these things, but would you do this? Would you give up your money for me? No. Well, then that's your Lord. That's your God. Jesus always points to the one thing. In the case of the woman in the well, she wasn't wealthy, but she looked to men for approval in her life. And she's always looking for that. And we know that because she comes back and says, I don't have a husband. Um, and Jesus says to her, yeah, okay, well, that's right. You have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the person you're with now isn't even your husband. Jesus knew exactly what he was pointing his finger at. He's basically saying, are you willing to put me first? Or do you put me here, but you're still going to try to seek approval from men? Because that's what she's, I mean, you don't get married five times and then live with somebody for the sixth without just like, I need this person in my life. I need, for, there's a need, right? There's something making me need that. And it's not even healthy when you're ripping through relationships like that. You know, it doesn't, you know, the way you get to have five husbands or five wives is all you have to be is seeking your own satisfaction and need and be selfish. And you will run through as many as she did. It's easy to do. And so uh, now she looks and says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> like she, she's starting to see that this conversation is not normal, right? There's something this guy knows about her that no one could have known. They probably spoke for some time there, by the way. Uh, but I love what she does next because this is typically the next move. When Jesus points his finger at your life and says, I need you to give up that for me. Would you do that? What we will do now is we'll try to distract Jesus with theology. Her next move is to go to theology. Because we love to do that. When I'm talking to people, I can always tell when Jesus is pointing a finger at something in their life. Because all of a sudden they want to talk about religion. Or they want to, well, some church, I heard a preacher once who, uh, what does this have to do with anything? So all of a sudden, here's what she says. You know what? Our fathers worship in this mountain. And you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Uh, so what about that? It's like, what a weird segue. She's trying to throw out something. Like, hey, I could be spiritual too. You know, look at this. And Jesus says, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But listen, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. And here's the point. Worship can only be done by someone who really knows God. So if you're up in the mountains and you don't know who you're worshiping, you're not worshiping anything. And by the way, the people in the temple who don't know God, they're not worshiping anything either. There are quote-unquote Christians in church right now, and worship time came, and they're like, mm, they don't know who they're talking to. They're the usual ones who find worship boring. Worship, by the way, is more than song. Prayers worship, uh, activities worship. There's always we worship Lord. But we basically worship God by just bringing us back to Him. Right? So worship is, is God's breath returning to him, is what worship is. So uh, worship can only be done by somebody. And then he goes on, he says, but an hour is coming. And in fact, it's now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He says, here's the secret of worship, and here's the secret of all this. The spirit brings you and then you face the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. So Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me. You need to be brought by the Spirit and face the truth. And the truth is, Jesus says, I'm it. I'm all there is. Everything else, mountains and temples, none of that matters. 
The hour is coming, he says, when only people who will worship in spirit and truth will worship the Lord. Because that's who he's looking for. It was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. Are you willing to come before him and worship him in spirit and in truth? And then the woman says, well, I know the Messiah is coming. He's called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus says, guess what? He came, I'm here, and I just told you. And what he's telling her is, I came here to let you know you matter. You may wonder whether you matter because you've never felt approval. There's a reason why she must be seeking approval from other people. She, she knows the Jews look down on her. I'm not good enough to worship in the temples with the Jews. But he's saying, you matter. But if you're going to do this, you have to face the truth. And the truth is, I'm it. The truth is, he says, I am the one who's going to bring you to the Father. The Spirit brings you to me. I bring you to the Father. Are you willing to do that? By the way, she does. She goes from there and, and there starts a revival in Samaria. That's what happens next. She goes and tells everybody about this man she met that knew everything about her. And there becomes a church in Samaria that Paul and Peter discover later. They don't even know it's there. In the book of Acts, they kind of run across it. Whoa, there's a whole bunch of believers in Samaria. I wonder where they come from. Well, this is where they came from. Because this woman was affected by Jesus. And she says, okay. I'm going to go get everybody else and bring them back because this is just different from anything I've ever heard before. Jesus stands before you again and says, here it is. I need to be the center of your life. If I'm the center of your life, I'm going to bring you in the presence of God. And everything else is going to get dim. You're not even going to care about it. But it only works with Jesus in the center if we're willing to worship in spirit and in truth. The question is, are we willing to do that? Would you all please pray with me?